I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat. But that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? Hello, 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 and welcome to episode 58 of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. I am your host, Matt Cohan, and I am joined, as always, by my main man, Arthur Cade. Huge, huge NBA and WNBA episode today. And as basketball guys, me and Arthur were like kids in a candy store on this one. Our first guest is WNBA superstar Shanae Ogamike. She is the star of the Los Angeles Sparks. She is an all-star. She is a Stanford grad and she has a film coming out. So now she has an executive producer to her resume. 144 will premiere tonight, May 13th at 9 p.m. Eastern time on ESPN. And Arthur, I wasn't around for this interview, but you did an excellent job talking everything basketball and beyond. So I got to give the credit to you here. Yeah, I didn't need to do much guidance here. Shanae is, an, as you mentioned, an absolute superstar. I mean, being the first African-American woman for ESPN to give her her own radio show, after talking to her, there's no doubt in my mind that she's not just going to be a pioneer in that arena. She's going to be a pioneer in many arenas, both on that network and many other places. She's articulate, engaging, charming, attractive. She had everything. I was absolutely blown away. And we talked about so much different topic matter. First of all, I want to dive into her new documentary that she executive produced around the WNBA and them going into the bubble during COVID. Fascinating stuff because they were the first league to come up with that idea. And obviously the NBA and other sports followed the bubble model. But for her to be able to show the plights of what WNBA players had to go through during that time and do it from a player's standpoint, which is why all the other WNBA players really trusted her with the camera and the crew in there was incredible. And I can't wait for people to see this documentary. It's going to be a, a groundbreaking, life-changing documentary for young women and young men out there who will look back on this time and understand what we all lived through with COVID, especially in the sports arena. We also talked all about the legacy of Kobe because one thing that people do forget is that outside of Kobe Bryant being one of the greatest basketball players of all time, at the end of his life, both him and his daughter and his family were huge proponents and huge supporters of women's basketball. And to have someone like Shanae be able to really relate the impact that they had was just incredible. We also talked about Love and Basketball, one of my favorite all-time movies. And I had to get her take, Matt, on Omar Epps and Sanaa Lathan's basketball skills from an actual basketball player. And she has the greatest breakdown ever. I feel like I'm kind of just giving items on this, but I want everybody to just be fully entertained because we covered so much. We talked about that she was the number one pick in the WNBA draft. And the pressures that come, whether it's a WNBA or any other league, on being the number one pick and what her draft day experience was like. And then I had to get her feelings on who the GOAT is in the WNBA. We always have the Jordan-LeBron debate in the W... And we always have the Jordan-LeBron debate in the NBA, but the WNBA has some really iconic players. 
and I wanted to get her feel. So and like she's so accomplished at this point that she's the vice president of the WNBA Players Association is like 15th on her resume. She played in Italy and China and she's working to, you know, kind of who pay exponentially more than the WNBA. So she's working on her spare time to kind of close that pay gap, which is just incredible in itself. So that was my only only addition to that. So let's let the interview roll. Yep, here you are, filmmaker, WNBA superstar, ESPN radio host and personality, Shanae Aguamike. Shanae Aguamike, you are a pioneer, a heck of a basketball player, a documentary filmmaking producer now, and ESPN's groundbreaking radio personality. It's a hell of an intro, isn't it? My goodness, I never thought that it would all come to fruition. But yes, this is me. <laughs> Unbelievable. First of all, let's start with this documentary you've created because to see everything we went through with COVID and then how different sports, different leagues had to adjust, including yours, was remarkable. To be able to tell that story, and you guys were really the first to the gates with it, it's got to be so cool. Yeah, I'm extremely grateful that the players trusted me and that my company valued my vision. And wow, like to have a season in the middle of a pandemic, especially given where our country was, and to see women stand together in the midst of all of that and really create meaningful change, like it just has, you know, we had this film and we had this project and we we're so excited to have the opportunity to capture the 144 women. We didn't know what was gonna happen, you know, in, in this season. We didn't know if the bubble was gonna pop or burst. We didn't know if the players were able to push through the hardest times of their lives, especially a lot of people being challenged with seeing these videos of black and brown people, you know, having violent altercations with police. We didn't know what would happen and to be there and to finish a season it's just amazing that this film captured that highly pressured moment, but it was truly a privilege. All right. So here's the million dollar question. How badly do people butcher your name on a daily basis? If I had a dollar for every time someone messed up my name, I'd be a millionaire, like a millionaire. And I'm mad because you didn't do it. So like that could have potentially got me more rich. But listen, I've... I've been doing this for a decade. I rule number one is if you're unsure, ask before you're live. So and I'm if like, unsure, ask before. I love that. So you also, and I brought this up at the top. You break barriers. You get this radio show from ESPN, which is incredible. There's going to be a whole generation of young women looking up to you. How insane is that? How did that all come about? Look. When I started playing basketball, I, we fell into basketball. I play, I have three sisters. We fell into basketball and fell in love with it. Had no idea that that would take me to Stanford University. Had no idea that that would take me to being a number one pick in the WNBA. Had no idea that the platform of basketball would turn into me being a broadcaster as well, an NBA analyst covering the NBA as well. And then now an executive producer. So like I had no plan besides understanding that I can't play sports forever. And so every possession, you know how they say like, treat every possession like it's your last. That's how I sort of stepped into basketball saying, all right, like let's say yes to all these opportunities because I know I can't play forever. And it's taken me to this point. So it feels surreal, 
now I know what it's like to make a movie. Oh, child, salute to filmmakers because it literally is your baby. And this film is my baby. It's our baby. And I would not trade this experience for the world. And I think it's a necessary story that needs to be told. How did the ladies handle the cameras all around? Obviously, it's one thing when you're playing the game. It's another thing when you're documenting a life and it's like a reality show. What was the reaction? So this is what makes 144 our ESPN film different. Because they knew it was a player behind the camera that I was executive producing. And because we're 144, not a huge number of people. It's an elite club of top female athletes. There was trust. They're like, oh, they'd see the camera floating around the campus, the bubble. And they're like, oh, someone would say, oh, what is that? And they're like, oh, that's just Shanae. She's like looking out for us. Like we've got a whole film, like we big time. We, you know, we're hitting the big screens. And so the players understood that that camera was an opportunity for us to share our story in a way that a lot of people don't necessarily do. And more importantly, behind that camera was a player so that they knew that whatever was going to come from that would be the most authentic version of themselves. I wanna to talk to you about women's basketball. So I actually played high school and college basketball, although D3, I don't know if that counts at your level, but for me, it counts. for a 6'2 kid like myself, it counts. Um, but I got to play with Dawn Staley when I was growing up, when Dawn was like in the prime. And people used to be like, ah, oh, women can't play basketball. Let me tell you, Dawn was playing with all the boys and better than us all. Now you look at the WNBA, women are dunking. The skill level is insane. When you look back at that set of pioneers, the Rebecca Lobos and Lisa Leslie, Dawn, and of course, Tarasi, to now where you guys are now, pretty, I mean, it's remarkable to see how it's developed, right? It's amazing. And, you know, it's funny. I'm 29 years old, so I'm still young-ish. But this new generation of players has a lot of the benefits of those women that set the foundation, meaning just the, the fact that we're the longest tenured women's professional sports league about to celebrate our 25th anniversary. And for a long time, we've been fighting for respect financially, recognition with marketing and just people not criticizing our game before they even, even get a, a chance to know it. And so it's that generation of pioneers that motivated us to continue to push boundaries. And now we're at this cool, super cool intersection of like, I always tell people, like I have two younger sisters, my younger sister is four years younger than me, but it feels like there's a great divide between her as a Gen Zer and me as a millennial. And like this Gen Z generation grew up watching YouTube and they can watch Instagram and see like, oh, I wanna work on that move. Me, I needed my coach. We didn't have Instagram then. Like I needed a human being to show up and teach me the game. And so now the world has so, so many like boundaries lifted because of where we are now with technology, also with personal branding, with people now being able to control their own narratives. And, and so, yeah, like 25 years in, it's an amazing point to be because finally we have the energy that I think will propel us to greater things in the future. Who's the GOAT? Let's, let's get to it. Who is the GOAT? I know my pick, but I want to hear your pick. So like, for those hoop, hoop, hoop heads can say like Cheryl Miller, which by the way, an icon, like certified buckets is the GOAT. So hoop heads have that answer. Me personally, I'm team Lisa Leslie, just because she embodies everything that sort of helped change the game. Dominant on the floor, first woman to dunk, did her own thing, 
was fierce, feminine, sort of set the table for professional athletes, especially women in a time where there was a lot of excitement. Being a part of that 96 Olympic team that helped launch the WNBA, you know? So for me, it's Lisa just because of what she has done for the culture. But there is Diana Taurasi who's still currently playing that is an all-time leading scorer. So like there are multiple GOATs. Um, and I think that's the coolest thing about it. But who's, who, who do you have? I have Tarasi. I think Tarasi is the best women's player to ever touch a basketball. Cheryl Miller, it's so tough. This is, it's the Jordan-LeBron debate. And I'll go to my grave saying Jordan's the greatest player of all time. But, you know, it's so hard to compare eras. And that's the yeah. challenge. I mean, Cheryl played when they weren't skilled like you guys are now. I mean, she was a, a woman amongst little girls. Now all of you are so skilled and so athletic and, you know, it's incredible. So I, I, I got to go to Rossi. She absolutely changed the game. There's a, and she just had a cool factor that every player of that next two generations emulated because she was just cool as shit. Yeah, facts. And yeah, trust me, I have to deal with her on the court still. And I'm like, Diana, uh-uh, ain't going to work on me. Like she'd be out here like going crazy. I'm like, uh-uh, no, no, no. But that's how she tests you. And that's why she's one of the greatest. You are number one pick. And I'm always fascinated when somebody's a number one pick, regardless of sport, you could be in the cricket league somewhere in the middle of nowhere. But when you're the number one pick, the pressure is on you. When you get that call, what immediately floods your mind about, holy cow, this is what I'm going to have to deal with now? I blacked out like for about a good three seconds. And so I had probably the best draft day experience ever. So it, the draft, the WNBA draft in 2014 was held at Mohegan Sun Arena in Connecticut, who that team, the Connecticut Sun had the number one pick. So imagine the New York Knicks having the pick and it being at Madison Square Garden with fans there. That was my experience getting picked to my team in my home arena. And then on top of it, I was sitting next to my sister who was two years prior a number one pick. And I spent those two years seeing her become number one pick and saying, I wanna do that too. And so it was like literally fulfilling my dream, being surrounded by my future fans on my home court. And so it was like sensory overload, your girl blacked out. And then my sister had to like slap me on the back and was like, Janae, come on, go get your jersey. I was like, oh yeah. And so uh, I had an amazing uh, number one pick overall draft day experience. By the way, what devil did your parents make a deal with in order to have two daughters that are as, as good at something as you are? Sorry to burst your bubble. There's, I have three sisters and my two younger sisters who also were talented basketball players. One is about to get her PhD in public policy and the other one's about to be in her second year in medical school about to be a doctor. So my, my, my older sister and I who play on the Sparks together, I always joke like, all we do is put a ball on a hoop. The little ones are about to go save the world. And so four girls, we're very blessed. Nigerian, you know, hopefully black excellence. Yeah, speaking of Nigeria, I mean, to see what basketball has done in terms of spreading globally, and now the both the NBA and the WNBA, I mean, look at Giannis, look at uh, Luca. We're getting them from everywhere now, and they're only getting better and better. Do you have any sense of the interpretation of basketball and how popular it has become in Africa and other places? Absolutely. I go back home to Nigeria. My family is from Nigeria. I was born and raised in Houston, Texas, but my parents and every generation behind my parents were born and raised in Nigeria. And so we're very connected to home. And I go back at least twice a year with the exception of the pandemic 
And ever since I've become a professional, it's been my mission because I've really, you know, I spent a, a, a quarter studying abroad in Nigeria where I was trying to, you know, get time being home and also fulfill my, you know, study requirements. I realized then that like, wow, sports here in the US, like we have so much freedom to choose to do whatever we want with our passions. It's not necessarily the case everywhere else. And so if there is a passion in Africa or Asia or wherever, Europe, the opportunities are that much harder to come by. And so using my platform, I was able to go back and do basketball camps and clinics in Lagos, in Abuja, in Nigeria, hopefully back to our homeland, you know, in our home, home village area, um, but the town of Oweri. I've been to Kenya, Nairobi. I've been to Cape Town, South Africa, and Joburg. I have been to Kigali, Rwanda, and seeing the game. There are people that have real passion for sports, not just football, which is the universal probably number one sport, because think about it, it's extremely accessible. Basketball is much harder, but it has this unique energy that people want to play. And so creating those pathways that make it easier, like for instance, I'd go back home to Nigeria and a lot of the girls didn't have sports bras or spandex wow. or proper shoes or the court wasn't leveled. Imagine hooping with, you know, potholes or holes in the ground. It just makes the experience so much harder. And on top of it, you're dealing with notions, especially in patriarchal cultures that are like, well, girls aren't supposed to be doing that. And so I was able to experience, wow, by nature being born and raised in the US and having parents that were forward thinking, sports has transformed my lives. It's on me to be able to help create those opportunities for those girls beyond. And I think that's what I've seen with basketball. There is so much energy and enthusiasm for it. It's now just having the infrastructure to support it. And the NBA and the WNBA has done an excellent job of expanding that infrastructure. So obviously with the schedule you keep, eating and fitness have to be an enormous part of what you do. Talk to me about nutrition and how you're staying in shape. My diet has improved dramatically over the last year. I think as I get older in the league, as a vet, you're like, okay, you got to really abide by this because that's what helps keep you fresh in a way that being younger, you can sort of skate by. And so I'm big into juicing. I'm big into having vegetables and limited proteins, meaning chicken and salmon and fish. And then taking a lot of supplements like vitamins to make sure everything has a chance to recover. And so the dietary thing for me has been like making sure I'm hydrating, juicing when I can't get like full on meals. And when I do get meals, keeping them colorful with greens and then smart proteins. And it's just been like a new thing for me the past year because your girl was eating whatever she wanted for a while. Um, but like workout wise, because I have multiple jobs, I'm on a grind. So like I'm up every day around 5.30 a.m. I get to the gym and this was previous to the season starting. I get to a gym and at the gym, I'm there at 6.30, like 6.30, yeah, 6.30 to 7. I'm working out until 10. Then I get back and do some work for ESPN and prepare and some appearances for my like brand. And then from one to four, I'm doing, you know, ESPN radio and other TV shows. And then after that, I'm trying to get recovery in. So my day is very regimented. And that's why knowing like, all right, in the morning, I'm grabbing this juice. At lunch, I'm grabbing the salad. At dinner, I'm going to have these vegetables. It's a very taxing schedule because I'm a broadcaster and a baller and also an executive producer. But I wouldn't trade this grind for the world because everyone says like, 
do it while you're young, you know? <laughs> all right, Love and Basketball, one of my favorite movies of all time. I love Sanaa, I love Omar. I've interviewed both of them a million times. Omar cannot play basketball and it's a shame, but he was great in the part. On a scale of one to 10 though, where is Sanaa rank as a basketball player and her skills? Oh, I would say like as someone that watches, like I'm the queen of Netflix and HBO Max and Hulu, like I watch everything. Love and Basketball is up there for hoop films right there with Coach Carter for me. Like those are the two that jump out. Um, but I would say, yeah, Omar, yeah, he's a little bit lower on the hoop level, but like he nailed the whole like boo type of thing going through high school. So like get credit for that. Sanai, like I think she gets the highest marks because she had the mannerisms of what athletes do on the court, how we treat each other, the attitude we have, and also the vulnerabilities. So like when it comes to the hoops and I uh, totally goes higher um, and like one of the best hoop films overall. What type of influence did she have for a young Shanae who's growing up and you see that film, did it have a major influence on you wanting to play basketball? Absolutely. Like seeing that film as I was playing just sort of and it educated me to what was going on with women outside of just what we see in high school. Like she went to go play overseas, you know, like this was a real type of possibility. It sort of opened my mind to like, oh, women can play here and play there professionally and all that type of stuff. And um, yeah, I, I just think that that film for a young girl that was falling in love with the game and then also like trying to, you know, find herself in high school. It was a real representation of a Hooper that like perseveres and also like gets what she wants, you know? So that sort of was the standard of like, okay, like she got swag and like I can have swag with whatever I do as well. So if I dropped you into a game into Drew League right now, how do you think you do? Oh, I do just fine. Those guys are, I mean, like, you know, Drew League is like, discipline does not matter. It's all about razzle-dazzle and show. And so, like, I have so much fun with that. Like, for me, I've been working on my three-point shot. And so, put me in a Drew League, I'm going to be just firing this thing. And, you know, one thing I love is, like, a lot of people say, oh, she's not, you know, girls can't play with guys and all that type of stuff. It's so funny because the energy flips. You might be a woman out there and you might be hooping because we've all played with guys. We, our practice players are guys. That's what I was saying when you're 6'2". Like, oh, come on, come through practice. Like, I'm sure you can still rebound. Um, the cool thing is like, all right, you might miss a few, but you make one, the guys will go crazy, you know, because it just is something that is surprising. And unfortunately it's surprising, but it's it's fun. So like whenever I play against guys, I'm, I, I have a blast because it's one thing to compete. It's another thing to be better. And when people see you being better, it just is, it just, it just is wild. What are you doing to elevate both on and off the court? To elevate both on and off the court, I think first and foremost, I am really grateful to have worked hard and have a platform with the WNBA to be a professional athlete, to have a platform with ESPN where my voice can be amplified. Like literally here's my radio mic and, and also be seen on shows because I know that my experience as a young black 29 year old um, you know, that's not normal to be in those spaces. And so my goal is to continue to do my job well so that it will create opportunities for other young people, other people that re I represent, you know, that look like me that maybe normally don't get the nod, but maybe because 
I'm there, people might be like, oh, she, she, she's doing it. Like, yeah, let's bring another one on, you know, another person, another young woman that has an amazing story or that has done great things on, like open the door for more. So I would say that that is my mission to create pathways for my peers in the next generation. And I think the best example of that is 144, the ESPN film. Um, I never knew that basketball would put me to a point where I could be able to tell the story of women that deserve it. And that's what this film is. And so I'm extremely excited for the world to see it. I think people that may not know of the WNBA will resonate with the struggles and also the strengths that we saw happen in 2020 in real time with the WNBA bubble, you know? And so it's gonna be a story for the ages. It's been my baby. And um, it just really shows that anything is possible if you put your mind to it. Kobe Bryant, I actually played in high school with him and to see what he was doing for women's basketball up until his tragic passing and obviously everything with Gigi and that she was slated to, to build her own foundation and her own career with her skill and now what Vanessa's doing. Talk to me about that legacy and for you guys, what it means to uphold it. My goodness, uh, Kobe and Gigi were the greatest ambassadors that the women's game had ever seen. And they didn't do it by talking the talk. Like a lot of people say, oh yeah, like I support this or that. They showed up for all of us. I mean, I think every professional women's basketball player of as of late had an experience of knowing Kobe's here and so is Gigi, you know? And then it wasn't just that. He invited us to train with him and pick his brain and soak that in and soak that up. And that all stemmed from the love of his daughters knowing that he had people to carry on his legacy and that putting women in front, you know, especially when it comes to sports, that's the great equalizer, you know, empowering through sports um, where you literally see people in their strength and their competitive fierce fire and all that type of stuff. And so it, it really is something that as a female basketball player hits home for us in a way that keeps us motivated and um, especially for Vanessa, seeing what she is doing now, holding down that legacy. My goodness, it just is so impressive, the strength of her, carrying that on her own shoulders and also knowing that, you know, this is just the beginning of one chapter that hopefully everyone can be inspired by to continue to push boundaries the same way Kobe did and the same way that Gigi would have wanted. Janae, you are an absolute superstar, dude. You are freaking awesome. There's, It's easy to see why ESPN decided to give you the platform they gave you. You're electric. So congratulations on this phenomenal documentary, 144, debuting on ESPN. Amazing stuff. I think everything you guys are doing with the WNBA is just tremendous. And now turning 43 in 10 days, seeing you guys grow from this infantile league to now this mammoth is incredible. So congrats. And you're really doing personally some amazing stuff. So congratulations. Thank you so very much. And I can't wait to see you at a Sparks game once we get our fans back, okay? I'm in. Perfect. Janae, you've been awesome. Thank you so much. All right, folks, we already said it, but we're going to say it again. Make sure to catch 144 on ESPN tonight at 9 p.m. Incredible, incredible documentary. And if you're not a WNBA fan after this, nothing will make you a WNBA fan because the respect that you will have for these women 
is going to be immense. And I think Shanae and that crew did an unbelievable job of really showcasing what it was like being an elite athlete during a very, very difficult time, a time unlike anything we've ever seen during our lifetime. So pretty incredible stuff. The other thing that I love talking to her about, Matt, was my experiences when I played in high school. I got to play with Dawn Staley, who's one of the greatest women's basketball players of all time. And there's a great clip, if you ever have a chance, find it, of Shanae posting up Peter Rosenberg, the radio host in New York. And she just messes with him. And the funny thing is, you forget, even though these are women, they can play with the boy. I mean, she would, if I played in a pickup game or if you threw Shanae in a pickup game and she talks about this in the interview, which you guys heard, if you threw her in the Drew League, she's like, I'd hold my own. These women are so freaking good at basketball. Don't sleep on the WNBA. They are fucking fantastic athletes and incredible basketball players. Next up, another basketball player on the men's side that I know you're a big fan of, Matt. Brian Scalabrini, Celtics benchwarming legend. He's the god. He might be the goat of benchwarmers in our lifetime. You don't lifetime. have to say benchwarming. He's just Celtics legend. I mean, the influence that Scal has on Boston now. He's, he's the color commentator on the Celtics now. But the influence he had when he played on that infamous 2008-2009 was incredible and he still has that around he's white mamba everywhere you go he is a legend then he is a legend now and this was like i was giddy for this i mean we've gotten on tony hawk neil degrasse tyson jalen rose brian scalabrini in my mind is right up there with all of them and he lived up to the expectations he's also he's is also the founder of scal's vodka lemonade which is delicious it's not too sweet and I'm glad that he's moving into this space because he can do no wrong in my book. Yeah, and as a lifelong Lakers fan, I can't stand that 08 Celtics team because they ended up beating my Lakers in the finals and really shutting Kobe down, which absolutely sucked. But Scalabrini is a perfect example. And I feel like Taco Fall is the next evolution of him now for this generation. But here's a guy who ended up being part of a championship squad but ended up as popular as some of the best players on that championship squad during his time because he was just such a beloved and fun teammate and really brought what it's like to be an awesome bench warmer to the forefront. And then when he ended up in Chicago, he was able to carry that reputation with him and they loved him there. I love that Scalabrini knows his role in NBA history, his role in those Celtics teams, and the stories that he shared with us, Matt, were just electric because you know as a Bostonite how unique that Boston team was with its personalities. You had, of course, KG, Paul Pierce, playoff Rondo, Glenn Big Baby Davis. But to actually hear about what it was like behind the scenes with these guys was just fascinating to me. So I think you guys are going to really love this one. Hopefully you drink Scal's Vodka Lemonade while listening to it. But here you guys go. Celtics legend, Brian Scalverini. This is a hugely exciting day for Endless Hustle fans and NBA fans worldwide as we invite on NBA champion, the voice of the Boston Celtics, the White Mamba himself, Mr. Brian Scalabrini. Scal, thanks for joining. No, man, this is uh, exciting. Um... Endless Hustle, that seems like that's a great name. A lot of podcasts, they miss on that. That's, a, that's an awesome name. You guys have uh, nailed it with that. 
Yeah, we, we went through a few rough drafts and came back, and I think we settled on a good one. And, hey, we got you on here, so it, it's a victory anyway you cut the pie. <laughs> Scal, you spent a decade in the pros. You've transitioned into the booth, and now you're an alcohol connoisseur. Can you yeah. tell us about Scal's Vodka Lemonade and how that came to be and how we can get our hands on some? Yeah, so it's all about the, like, the, or, the, like, let me tell you the type of guy I am, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not bougie. Don't get me wrong. I'm not... But I like everything to be like the best it could possibly be. So I, there's always, and that was that was kind of me as a player. I wanted to see like every day, how can I improve? How can I do this? And I had to. Like, I, there's no way I spend ten years in the NBA or um, if I don't like try to move the needle every single day. And how, I woke up every morning. How can I improve today? So I transitioned that into life afterwards. And whether it be broadcasting or doing commercials or or busting up that kid one-on-one. -on -one. Like whatever I do, I try to go all in, right? And the one thing that was, I'm not gonna say it's missing, but you know, like if you wanna have fun and you wanna go out and you wanna have fun with your friends or you know, have a few drinks at night, like you're gonna feel it the next day. And I'm, I'm 43 now. And as you get older, it's like, you have to ask yourself like, man, is it even worth it? I, I like, I'm not talking about getting blacked out drunk because at 40, you shouldn't be getting blacked out drunk, but you should be having a good time and you shouldn't feel like garbage the next day. So one thing leads to another. I met somebody, I teamed up with Crooked Oaks and they wanted to do a ready to drink. So we went back and forth. We doing tastings and everything like that. And we settled in on this right here. And this is going to be Scal's uh, Vodka Lemonade. And they're in the cans and you get a four pack and the whole thing about Crooked Oaks to me was they're all about like clean ingredients. And that meant a lot to me. And I, and I found out a lot about alcohol and what they put in it. And then how can we transition that into a ready to drink? So we came up with this, which is basically a very potent lemonade vodka. And everyone thinks it's, you know, a seltzer. It's not a seltzer. It's not like the uh, Bud Light seltzer or all those things, right? It's, it's, it's vodka. It's carbonated water and lemonade. So it's all, like, it's, like I'm saying, it's all those natural ingredients and you can crush a can. And I wanted to also make it potent. It's 18% alcohol. So I went big on that. So you're not going to be sitting there like after you drink one, thinking to yourself, like, would, uh, you know, you go out and get a drink at dinner. And you're just like, it, was there any, even any alcohol in there? You will feel the alcohol right from the jump. And I, I just, I think it's a great product. And I'm not just like this spokesman. I'm like, we, we are partners on this, trying to make this thing happen. And I think it's delicious and you can get them at all the, all the liquor stores in the uh, New England area. So I, they're about $16 for a four pack, but each one you have to think of it, you know, like it's two and a half, you know, almost three shots of vodka in there. Scale, I'm going to, after this, I'm going to run out and I'm going to grab some, I'm going to take a photo of it and you're going to, you know, repurpose I'll like it. it. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. But you have to drink it. I'm going to drink it first. Yeah. And, 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 and be careful. Cause like I said, we didn't, I didn't mess around, man. How many times do you go out you get a drink and you say, Hey man, can you put an extra shot in there? And then they bang you for another eight bucks. Right. So I'm like, I want this thing to be strong. I want it to taste like lemonade. And it like, you're, you feel it. Like you feel like you're drinking a real drink. It ain't no like, Oh, what, what's going on here? And you crush, you know, 15 of these things. Now you feel it right off the jump. So, Scal, we've had some of the biggest names imaginable on the show, and I've never seen Matt more giddy than when he found out you were coming on. So let me just start with that. And then I love your flex behind you with the the, the World Champions banner. That just, as a Lakers fan, I'm about to vomit, but we'll, I'll keep it in for now. Well, you know, 
I feel like this, if you have it, you got to flex it, right? I, I kind of feel like Zoom is now a part of our world. I just want, and I'm, I was, I'm not the type of guy that's going to throw up my own individual jerseys up because I feel like that's a little bit lame. That's not a big enough Zoom flex for me. So I always take the team aspect of it. <laughs> so you brought up destroying that high school kid. Obviously that video went viral. We see it in just moments in TikTok, but I want you to walk me through what actually happened. Okay. So this was about two months ago. It wasn't recently. And um, so I, I coach my daughter's 13 year old AAU team and we have a scrimmage set up. And before I I'm just coming back, I, I play all the time, by the way, still, like I play pickup games all the time. Everyone in Boston will tell you I'm like involved in this, like this underground pickup circuit, especially during the pandemic, by the way. And I hurt my back cause I'm playing too much and I got a little psychotic. Right. And I'm easing my way back into this. So here's, here's like the line where I, when I don't want to play someone, this is what I use. So the kid comes up, let's play these one-on-ones. And I'm like, I'm like, can't act scared. So I said like, nah, man, you too little. You ain't on my level. And he's right away. He's like, nah, man, I ain't scared. Let's play. You afraid you're going to get your ass kicked. Like I go in with the hard uh, you know, gaze. I'm like, well, let's play for something then. You seem so confident. Let's go, man. I got this new iPhone 12. Let's put your iPhone up. iPhones are broke. My kids needs a new iPhone. I'll just take yours, reset that bitch, and let's go. And I'm at that point, at that point, most people are like, nah, why can't we just play for fun? Then I hit him with the I'm a professional, man. I get paid to play. I don't do this stuff for fun. See, that's the difference between you and me. You do it for fun. I do it for a business. But he was not backing down. At that point, I'm like, he's like, let's go then. I'm not scared. So I'm like, dang it. I thought that would work. Like it usually works and it didn't work that time. So I'm like, I guess I got to play. So I'm warming up. I'm getting all ready. I'm sure I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, I might have even, I might not even get through this one-on-one game with the way my back has, I'm, I don't know if I'm good enough to play or not, put it that way. So I go over there and there's more disrespect coming my way. And it just just like flips a switch, right? You know, I've been involved in, in games where I had no business being on the court. I had no business stretching out an 11-year career. I had no business doing any of that stuff. But what I did was, you know, mentally, I had to believe that I was, I was good enough. I had to work like I was good enough. I had to like squeeze every ounce of talent out of me to, to make sure I was good enough. And I have these abilities to like click into being in that mode where I'm going against Hall of Fame players and I'm thinking I'm better than them at that moment, right? So I, I, I flipped the switch and the level of disrespect, I got the juices flowing. I didn't feel my back. I didn't feel anything. And I just went in there and I wanted to send a message to him and all of his friends who were recording with their phones and all that stuff. And I thought nothing of it. This is like a normal Tuesday for me. It is what it is. I'm glad I got through the scrimmage. I feel pretty good about it. And then um, two months later, I'm on a train back from New York and my phone is going nuts. And it's all this, uh, this video of this kid. And I thought that they did a really good job of editing it and, and showing it. And then for whatever reason, you know, like the washed up, overweight, 43-year-old, one of the worst players in NBA history plays this guy and he just destroys them. And it's like a sign of a social experiment. Like you guys, you guys, it's not a current NBA player. This is a guy who hasn't played for 10 years and he is still roasting people out there. And it made for a really good story. And it was on all the conversations was on TNT, ESPN, Stephen A. Smith. I mean, it went, it made, it made the rounds. Yeah. People don't realize you could be the worst player in the NBA and you were still probably the greatest player to come out of your high school or state or something of that nature. Sure. Well, it's, it's odd though. Like you'll never meet 
like a 40 year old man that thinks that he can tackle a running back, right? You never meet uh, some average Joe that thinks he can hit a fastball. You don't meet any of those. What is it about basketball that people think that they can do it? That's it's the most mine. I don't think that if 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 any like the worst soccer player in the world was in front of me, I'm pretty sure he'd just dribble right around me and score. You know, like I don't understand the delusional people when it comes to basketball. And it for whatever reason, that particular sport right there has the most delusional people. And I'll give you a story. I was in, in college and I was working the Santa Barbara camp. It was Michael Jordan's basketball camp. We coached the kids all day and at night we play pickup. And during that pickup games, uh, the college kids would talk shit to Michael Jordan. Like, how delusional are you? Like, this is the greatest player to ever play. You are barely 19 years old. Yet, like, like I said, people are delusional. And I, I am equally bad at it as anybody i believe that i'm better than what i am he believes he's better than what he is i think it's universally known basketball players are the most delusional people you'll ever meet this is the second time you've done this experiment right i think the the year after your retirement you beat a bunch of chumps like i think you aggregate like 44 to 6 so yeah. I mean, you haven't lost your touch here but my question for you is who is capable of beating a 43 year old brian scalabrini how about like the MVP of a division three conference. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like the top, the top 50 high school players. Like I'll tell you who I can't beat. Like if, if Nate, you know how, you know who Nate Robinson, right? Yeah. Like the, the quick, the super, super quick athletic guy who can shoot. I'm not beating that guy. I'm just not, I can't, I can't get in his airspace enough where he could just, or, and then he'll drive by me. And if I gap him, he just shoots right over me. And then when I put the ball on the floor, they're so quick. They just like, they get the ball. So there's, there's guys out there, but I'm not losing to some noodle six, eight high school player. Like you, he's not going to have enough strength to beat me. But like, if there's like some compact, small five ten super athletic, that guy's going to be really hard for me to beat. It's just, it's just certain matchups, you know, like that. And Division three, yeah. There's a lot of division three players that are better than me. There's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of players out there that would beat me, but that kid wasn't beating me. How about two high school JV players? If they can shoot, they'll beat me. If they can shoot, but yeah, I mean, it's I'm not that. Look, it. I I play all the time. I I play. I work out with this AAU squad, the Bay State Jaguars, the the the, the boys team. I'll beat all those guys one on one. They can't get close to touching me, but. There's some pretty gifted high school players out there that would probably that would probably they won't they won't shut me out 11-0, but they'll beat me big time. It's just there's just a big gap. And remember, I've been I've been seeing it's not about like quickness as much. Like I've seen every move you've ever possibly you go inside out, you bring your hand. I know exactly what you're doing, and it's happening in slow motion for me. It's it's like why I love watching football when they have that camera behind the quarterback and he drops back and he throws the ball and you have no idea what's going on. And all of a sudden, boom, the receiver's wide open. Like he's seeing that all before it's happening. When you're, oh, I'm guarding you. I've seen all this stuff before thousands and thousands of times. So I'm not being tricked by you, you know? Roy Williams retired today. Any fun nice. Roy Williams stories? Yeah. Funniest thing. I um, wrote Kansas when he was at Kansas he was the only place I wanted to play I, I wanted I was being recruited by like some division two schools some low level division ones and I told my coach he's like where do you want to go to college I go I want to go to Kansas and I wrote him a letter and I wrote multiple letters and he, actually he wrote me back and said Brian 
we're going to go a different direction. I really appreciate it. Just keep working hard. Like, you know, you're, you'll be able to accomplish your goals of going to a really good school. And it was like really handwritten by Roy Williams. Right. And so I'm thinking that's odd. And I see him later. We played against Kansas and I brought that up and he came up to me after the game. And he said, like, I remember you, man, like you've improved a lot. Keep working. And then I saw him at the hall of fame one time. And I told him the story. He goes, well, let me tell you, he goes, this, let me tell you, Scal, I've gotten some guys right, and I've got a lot of guys wrong. You weren't the first, and you're not going to be the last. <laughs> so that was my, my Roy, Roy Williams story. But I really wanted to go play for him at Kansas when I was growing up, uh, like this small-town kid out of Seattle. Uh, Scal, Arthur knows this, but you were on one of my favorite team out of any sport ever, the 2008 Boston Celtics. We see the banner, obviously, over your left shoulder there. Uh, I want to kind of talk about that team because, you know, I can't get enough of that. But a guy I really want to figure out is, is Rajon Rondo. He's one of the most enigmatic players in recent memory. Doc claims he's the smartest player he's ever coached. I believe you did as well. Uh -huh. Is there any anecdote you have of Rondo that can capture who he is as a person? Um, so he's, he's super competitive, really smart, so smart. Like he's, he sees the game on a level. Sometimes he's like too smart for the game. Like, you know, like the game of basketball, you kind of like, uh, go, go till the well is dry, feed the pig, all these things where a guy has a hot hand, you keep milking that. Right. Like he takes a, like a snapshot of every play you run and he wonders how a guy's going to guard it. If you ask him like, why are we not running this play? He's like, I'm saving that right around the four minute mark in the fourth quarter because they won't be able to make an adjustment if i run it now they'll make an adjustment and it won't be there this is how we're going to win this game tonight so he's just like if, when you when doc said he's the smartest player he's ever coached it's it's really not that close to be honest with you and i play with jason kidd he's he's so he's so highly intelligent sometimes sometimes i can see how he's frustrated with you know um players that aren't on his level at all i can see how he could really turn guys off like that and, and you play with him you wonder you know does he even care but no he is uh and that's why they call him playoff rondo like he's all into all into the you know the big moment or the national tv rondo where it's a big game and he has like these monster triple doubles and i would always ask him i'm saying like uh you ready to go tonight and he's like like yeah i'm ready i'm ready i'm like yeah but we're playing bino udrich like what are we gonna get at you <laughs> just kind of messing around you know and he's like you're gonna get enough to win the game that's what you're gonna get you know so I I never saw all the like the, the Rick Carlisle thing the Sacramento thing I never saw Rondo as that I've always seen him as when he was with us in 08 and what like what we saw last year in the bubble with the Lakers I, I I'm like too much in the weeds to understand that Rondo can do wrong because he's so good he's so smart he he can like lead a team with a bunch of like no non-NBA players and, and help him win a game. He, he was just like the most unique player I've ever played with. Kevin Durant's been in the news recently because him and Michael Rappaport got into it on social media. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating because here's a private conversation. You know, two guys are jawing at each other, but when someone makes it public, now Durant might be in hot water. What are your thoughts about, should he A, get in trouble for that type of conversation when it's a private conversation? And bigger question are NBA players like Durant too sensitive with social media these days? So take this example out of it, right? Because I do, I'm, I'm I don't know how you feel, but I think private conversations got to remain private. And I, Michael Rappaport's a really good friend of mine. Like we probably talk like 
at least once every three weeks. And we just, and by the way, if that conversation went out, I'd probably be canceled too, right? I would definitely be in hot water the amount of uh, shit that I talked to Michael Rappaport when we talked to each other. So I was a little bit disappointed that Rap did that, right? Because those guys, I mean, if, I mean, some of the stuff that Michael Rappaport says and puts it out there, like, it's like, it's kind of ridiculous, right? So I was disappointed in Rap, but, uh, but I, I do think that NBA players are a little bit sensitive nowadays. Like Kevin Durant, as accomplished as he is, I, I don't see why you're bothered by anything. You're living your life. You're doing what you want to do. You want to go to Golden State and win two championships and be the MVP and be the best player on that team? Like you have the right to do that. And whatever people say, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. And if you don't care about legacy or anything like that, like that's all for other people to talk about. So I don't, I don't know why NBA players do get caught up in the social media game. Like if, if to defy the odds, I mean, this is the way I look at it. Like to make it to the NBA, you're like, you're, you're beating all the odds anyway. So what does it matter? You know, what other people say or how other people view you. There's a certain point in your life where you just got to move past all that stuff and just do whatever you feel is best. And I was a little, but, but that's a different topic than, than the Michael Rappaport, putting that conversation public and by the way when I talk to him again and hopefully it's on camera I'm going to call him out for that because I think that was that's like a bro code man you don't do that yeah I completely agree yeah he kind of like poked the bear and then put his hands up which I thought yeah, was, yeah even he sh he should know better too because he seems to know the rules of, of engagement as well you would think yeah you would think so yes. I'm, gonna try, I'm gonna I'm actually gonna get to the bottom of this and I'll probably try to do it publicly with him to find out what's the deal it's funny because you guys kind of look alike 100 percent. that's why I was gonna ask you how many times a day do you get hey you look like that actor oh what uh, not when I'm in Boston but when I'm out yeah all the time you know like not in LA because LA they know it's it's him and not here because they know it's me but if me and him are out in Charlotte, because, you know, he does the big three, I do the big three, a lot of people are like, oh, my God, I thought you guys were the same person. And I was like, you thought I was him? Oh, my God. No wonder you guys think I suck. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, Scal, because you are probably one of the most glorified bench warmers, but you took it to an art form, and you kind of built this brand out of it. Was that intentional? Was there a moment where you're like, all right, I know I'm never going to be Kevin Durant, but... I'm going to have fun with what I am here. Yeah. So that, that's a great question. That happened. It never happened in Boston. And I probably regret it. Like, I wish I would have embraced that role more, like coming in at the end of games, going to get a bucket. But when I was in Chicago, I was all about it. There, like, I would go in the game. I would be thirsty trying to score, not for like my stats. I'd be thirsty trying to score to give the people what they want. And then I would, I mean, very wrestling type of stuff with like waving the crowd on, let's go, you know, but I embraced it and it was awesome when I kind of fought it. And I wasn't fighting it because of my own ego. I was fighting it because, you know, Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, Paul Pierce, Rondo, whoever, Perkins, they, they, they're the ones that got the 25 point win. Like those guys should be singled out. But by the time I got to Chicago, I was just like, 
it doesn't matter, you know, like none of that stuff. These people are just showing up and they want to be entertained, you know? So I just was like, I got to get myself a bucket. But, you know, none of this white mamba stuff or anything happens if I'm not on teams that are blowing teams out. If I'm on teams that suck, if I'm on teams that are squeaking by, then I'm not playing in these games and, and no one knows it. But the fact that you get up by 20 and then people have something to stick around for and watch, and it's entertainment, it kind of like this whole thing takes on a life of its own. Scale, uh, my favorite player of all time is Kevin Garnett. My AIM screen name was Matt KG21. Um, you know, he's been just a role model, I guess, for me. There was that rumor circulating that KG, you know, claimed he was the strongest player on the team and beat Leon Poe and uh, Big Baby in an arm wrestling match. Does that have any truth to it? And uh, yeah, so any other it's the most incredible Garnett story because so it was Glenn Big Baby Davis. Glenn Big Baby Davis went through and arm wrestled everybody for about a week. By the way, that 2018 was like certified. If you took a group of psychologists and had a conversation with us, the, the psychologists would write down, this team is nuts, like nuts. They all need to be on medication, right? It was the most intense environment you could ever imagine from the locker room to the weight room, to the practice floor, to the plane, you know, on the buses, gambling. Uh, it was like, you, you cannot, you cannot imagine what it's like to live like that, which is absolutely awesome by the way. But yeah, so Glenn Baby's just like crushing everybody. I arm wrestled him, it was like, go, bam. Eddie House, Posey, I mean, anybody and everybody. He just rolled through everybody. All of a sudden, we're on this flight back from Toronto, and KG's like, let's go, Funk, let's do this. And I heard it, but I was like, I thought he meant, like, deal the cards or something else, you know? Like, I, didn't, I had no – it was so far-fetched to think that Garnett was going to arm wrestle Big Baby that I thought, I thought, there's no way this is going to happen. And then all of a sudden, they get down, they're, like, doing this, right? And I guess Garnett was kind of peaking Big Baby in all these games, even though he acted like it was, he was disinterested, right? And Big Baby was using the, the, the table as leverage. So he was like pulling one and going like that. So Garnett made him like, I don't know, like grab hands or like they, they had to keep the hands on the table, flat hand on the table. So anyways, they go and as they start, Garnett just stares at Big Baby. And Big Baby's like used to just crushing people. He's like, I can't. He's like, I ain't moving, Funk. I ain't moving. I ain't moving. I ain't moving. I ain't moving. It was like the ultimate rope-a-dope. From Kevin Garnett to Big Baby, he was just like wearing them out, wearing them out, wearing them out. He was just standing there. And by the way, he's sweating profusely, right? Like, I mean, it is like coming down. Coronavirus is exchanging all in their face. Like, <laughs> there's no social distancing. They are nose to nose right here, right? And all of a sudden, like, he moved like just like it was like like that. He just moved like, and he was like, oh shit, oh I'm a, oh you going down, big fella? And he started going. You saw this look in Big Baby's eyes, like he's like oh my God, I'm going to lose. And Garnett kept going. And by the way, before this happened, Paul Pierce, everyone was betting Big Baby. I got 2,000 on Big Baby. I got 500 on Big Baby. I got 1,000 on Big Baby. Paul Pierce stood up with just like wad of cash. Like, I'm betting Ticket. Anybody want to take action against Ticket? I'm betting no one beats Ticket. And I don't think he thought he was going to win, but he wanted to show support of his boy, you know? And so he started taking all the action and the money just... Like, I think I put up, like, I got $42 on Big Baby. <laughs> These guys only carry hundreds. I'm bringing, I'm bringing one, 41, 42, $42 on Big Baby. <laughs> so there's a pile of money. It's like, 
there's this, that, and there's these guys arm wrestling. He started moving, and Paul Pierce is like, oh, shit, it's going down, it's going down. Anyways, it's going, it's going, it's going, and he, boom, he slams Big Baby down. He gets up. He's like, I'm the alpha male in this bitch. Don't y'all ever forget it. Ah, like that sweating and spitting it everywhere. Paul Pierce is counting cash. He's like, ah, like that. This is, and this is like a Thursday for the 2018. But that's, that is Garnett's will. That is like how he believes in himself. Like you can see the goosebumps and all that stuff. It was nuts, man. It was the most insane thing I think I've ever seen. So much so I had like a addiction to the chaos. When I went to Chicago, the team was fine. We were good. We were a little bit nuts, but I was like going through withdrawals of like the chaos. I needed more chaos because I've been so used to chaos around that team. And that's how that team functioned. That's why we were good. Jackie McMullen was just on Bill Simmons talking about Kevin Garnett's pregame rituals. And she was like, he would literally lather himself into this anger sweat. And she's like, she'd never seen anything like it. He would get into a zone that no other player could get into. And, and, and by the way, the, the funniest part about all that, like, let's say, let's say Kevin Garnett's on the table getting treatment and you walk by him and it's the clock hasn't ticked. There's 60 minutes on the clock and that clock stays at 60 minutes until it gets, you know, underneath that time and then it starts to go. And that clock hasn't ticked. KG would be like, what up, man? How's your family? Oh, the girl, how's my, like, he loved my daughter. My daughter's favorite player is Kevin Garnett. You're like, oh, how's my girl? Is she doing good? Yeah, you just teach her to have that heart. You know what I mean? I'm like, yeah. He's watching Family Guy. Oh, man, Stewie, he's funny as a motherfucker. Man, that guy's hilarious, right? Then you walk back. Oh, I forgot my wristband. I come back, the clock's moving. I'm like, oh, KG, what about? He's like, hey, hey looks at the clock. Hey, it's game time. Let's go. And you, you couldn't talk to him from that 60 all the way till game time. He just like flipped, got into the mode, but that's how you want it. Right? Like we play 82 of these things and every time he can bring it, he brought that high level and he brought that intensity, but he was the most locked in athlete I've ever been around. He was the most intense athlete I've ever been around. You, most guys would probably have a nervous breakdown and probably have a mental issue, but he, he functioned that way. And he, he just had the most energetic, he's the most energetic person you'll ever be around. Scale, before we let you go, I kind of, I don't want to make you depressed here, but I want to talk about the current state of the Celtics. Ah, oh, terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I want to get a recently, uh, Gilbert Arenas said that in two or three years, Jason Tatum will be dominating on a Kobe Bryant level. I mean, he's 23, averaging 25 a game. Do you agree with that? And can you talk about what the Celtics need to do to just drag themselves out of the depths of hell. Yeah. Um, they got to play faster. They just have to play faster. You have to like the game of basketball is about making quick decisions and attacking the rim. This is an NBA that we live in now where you're not allowed to touch guys anymore. So settling for a step back jumper could work, but it's not the best offense. You want, you want to attack your defender, get downhill, draw two, and then move the ball and get a wide open shot. That's the name of the game nowadays. And I think, I don't think that we have enough, um, like we don't attack the paint and make the right rim reads. When you do that, that is the hardest thing to guard because you're in rotation defensively. If I was, if me and you were playing one-on-one and I kept settling for a step back jumper, even if I made a few, you're like, this is great. I don't have to deal with Scal coming through my chest. I don't have to deal with Scal at the rim. I don't have to deal with any of that stuff. So it's just, I always look at it like, what is hard to guard? 
What's hard to guard is people attacking the rim. And the Celtics, they keep getting down big and they play this one particular style and they always get back into the game. So, I mean, I don't know. How about you just play that style right from the start, right? How about you just play fast? How about you have all these shooters and all these great players just get downhill, move the ball, and continue to get downhill? Those are the best teams. Like, if you ever watch a Utah Jazz play who are just like destroying the NBA right now, all they do is drive and kick, drive and kick, drive and kick three, drive and kick, drive and kick, throw it up top to Rudy Gobert. It's like, it's actually a very simplified way of playing, but we, we don't play that way. So, I don't, I'm not sure we'll ever be elite to do that. Now, when it comes to Jason Tatum, those shots that he's shooting with 14 seconds on the shot clock, those are supposed to be made when, when you're up against the clock and you have five seconds on the clock and you've got to go out there and do something. It's good that you can do that. You want to use it like twice a game. You don't want to use it like 12 times a game. So I think maybe he, I think everyone forgets Kobe Bryant used to attack the rim and dunk on people's heads. They always remember like the old Kobe Bryant that all he did is shoot the pull up jump shot. You remember the early Kobe Bryant? Like all he did was dunk on people. I don't when when Kobe Bryant was teaching all these guys, did he mention, hey, you know, my first eight years, all I did is drive and dunk on guys. Like that'd be that'd be good good advice to have to for some of these young guys to say, like, hey, Kobe was basically teaching him, and it's I'm I don't I'm not trying to bash Kobe. I think he did a great job of teaching all these guys that specific skill set, but I think he's ignoring the fact that early on in his career, all he did was attack the rim. Michael Jordan attacked the rim. All these great players. Luka Doncic, as much as we talked about the step back jumper, all he did was attack the rim. Why are these guys settling for those terrible shots? I don't know. And I'm not there. I'm so disconnected this year because of COVID. I'm up in my perch. I'm not talking to coaches. I have no idea what people are thinking. And so all I can tell you is I watch the NBA and when guys attack and they get downhill, those teams are really good. Final question, Scout. When was the first time you heard White Mamba? And did you ever talk to Kobe about the nickname? Uh, indirectly with Kobe, but Stacey King in Chicago, the, the, uh, the, like the, what I do for the Celtics, he does for the bulls. He came up with the white Mamba. And I thought it was just like, it's such a, such a great nickname. <laughs> the whole, the whole premise of, I, and I, and I kind of spun it like, you know, you know, we all know Kobe's going to shoot those shots in the fourth quarter. We all know when I'm in the game, I'm going to shoot the shots in the fourth quarter. It's very similar. So I spun that. And then I kind of went like, we might be up by 20, but you guys know what I mean. <laughs> Brian Scalabrini. Hey, pick up Scal's vodka. Yeah, lemonade. Right is, that only, is that only in the Boston area? You New England, New England, all New England. Like you can get them New Hampshire and stuff like that. But remember, like don't look at it. It's like Scal, right? It's it's a very it's a it's a can, but it packs a big punch. All right. <laughs> Word. I'm gonna go it's get the white today, the white mamba of alcohol. Hey, we were going to name it that, but Wachusis already stole it. <laughs> they have a white mamba beer. So we were, we went with Scows, but we, we definitely were going to do that. It's <laughs> Scow, I'm going to the game on the 28th against the Hornets. Maybe I'll run into you there. Yeah. Come up to the plexiglass. We'll do like it's in prison. Like I'll be on one side. <laughs> be like, ah, oh. <laughs> all right, brother. Thanks for joining, man. You Thanks, it, man. Guys. You've been awesome. Thanks, brother. That, folks, was Celtics legend and now NBC Boston broadcaster, Brian Scalabrini. Let's give him one last Scal's Vodka Lemonade plug because we love you, Brian. Thanks for the amazing stories. I know that you absolutely made Matt's day with this interview. Am I right, Matt? Day, week, year. I think, I think I'll go as far to say year. So thanks, Scal. I'm going to see you at Celtics games going forward. Maybe bring me down to the front row. 
just just you know i'll, I'll drink scal's vodka lemonade and we'll we'll roll from there big guy yeah i love scal man we could have this guy on once a week and have a blast and although we recorded this a couple months ago two of the stories that he covered that it was just great and i hope you guys really enjoyed was if you guys all remember <laughs> i'm like if you remember like it was like in 2002 when it was like six weeks ago um the kevin durant michael rapperport social media beef scal is good friends with rap and to hear him talk about how he believes that rap violated bro code was freaking hilarious and then also we interviewed him the day that roy williams the legendary kansas and then tar heels coach retired and hearing scal talk about how he almost played for roy williams was just fascinating Scal was just amazing. And Scal, we can't trust it enough. You're welcome back anytime. And let's go. I'm going to give him one last plug. Go drink Scal's vodka lemonade. Our last interview of the day, one of the toughest power forwards of my lifetime, a throwback to what the NBA used to be. Brian Grant started out his career with the Blazers, one of the toughest dudes. And I can say that as a Lakers fan because no one could guard Shaq in his prime. No one could guard him when he played for the Lakers. But Brian Grant did a hell of a job doing it. The guy was just pure toughness. And now Maddie's got a new book out called Rebound, Soaring in the NBA, Facing an Incurable Disease and Finding What Really Matters. Just to give a little bit of a spoiler alert, he's battling early onset Parkinson's. And Matt, he really gave us an inside look into what it's like to battle this horrendous disease at such a young age. Yeah, I mean, we had WWE's Drew McIntyre on who, you know, had his own problems with mental health when he said he went below rock bottom. And just, you know, after Brian Grant got this awful diagnosis, he was in that sunken place. And just to hear how he just managed and, you know, shifted his, you know, new identity and, and kind of settling into this awful disease and and getting used to going out in public and his handshaking and how he got used to getting over the humiliation of it. Um, and just to see where he is now, where he's sitting down writing a book. I mean, this guy's NBA career was incredible. And now he's, you know, the second half of his life, the second chapter is just equally as astounding. So uh, I'm looking forward to reading this book because he was not only a beast in the NBA, but he's a beast after it too. So uh, I was very honored to, that he came on and took time out of his day to, uh, to sit and talk with us, Jamokes. Yeah. And I just want to touch on, obviously you'd made the Drew McIntyre comparison. Drew, in terms of what he battled, that's something, and this is by no means to make light of Drew's very dark battle with depression and alcoholism, but physically he was able to return to what he was. Where with Brian Grant, to go from being an elite athlete to an incurable physical and mental disorder, I can't even imagine the toll that that would take on you, especially when you're a guy who prided yourself and prides yourself currently on being such a mentally and physical tough dude. And he was tough. I mean, Brian Grant was one of the toughest. He was like a bruiser. And the NBA doesn't have many bruisers anymore. Brian Grant was the ultimate example of being a bruiser. And in this interview, and I think you guys are going to love it, just hearing him talk about what it was like guarding Shaq, obviously the early battles with depression as he found out he had early onset Parkinson's, and then just some incredible stories around what it was like guarding Carl Malone, playing for Pat Riley, Kobe Bryant, and so much more. Really fascinating interview with Brian Grant. So here you guys go, Blazers, Heat, and then Lakers legend, Brian Grant.
We are honored to have on the Endless Hustle today, a guy who spent 12 years in the NBA, who Tim Duncan once called the hardest working guy in the league, and now a published author of the new book, Rebound, Soaring in the NBA, Battling Parkinson's, and Finding What Really Matters, Mr. Brian Grant. Brian, thanks for joining. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no worries. We're going to talk about all about the contents of the book in this conversation, but what was the impetus for you to write the book now? I mean, 12, full 12 years after your diagnosis, did it just feel like the right time or the right fit? How'd that go down? I think it was the right time. Um, you know, I'd always told my story to different people of how I made it to the NBA, the things that happened, the things I couldn't believe that happened. It was definitely one of those journeys that something was playing a part in it and uh, something that was out of my control just so long as I did the work I was supposed to do then things would happen but more so than that um, just want to tell the whole story about me because um, you know when you're in a position and you're doing good things in the community and you're being that person you know it's almost like a trap in your own mind because you know that you got another side to your things that you're dealing with that people don't know that you're dealing with. And I just kind of got to the point where, you know, I'm, I've been diagnosed, I've been divorced twice, uh, deal with depression, those things. And it was like, I needed something to kind of free me up. You know, I could tell you another good story, another good this, another good that, but this is all of me, not just the good shit, all of me. Sorry for the cuss word too. No, feel free. I, cu I cuss all the time, so we're all good. In fact, I'll, I'll start it with a cuss. Because I before we got on, I said to you, I fucking hate you, man. But I love you at the same time. And I'll explain the, di the difference between the two. If I was an NBA owner, you're the guy I want on my team. You're that prototypical power forward that I, as a 42-year-old, grew up watching. The Oakleys, the Brian Grants, the AJ Green. I love those guys. But because I'm a lifelong Lakers fan, I fucking hated you because you were one of the few guys who actually did a decent job against Shaq in his prime. So I got to ask you, what was it actually like guarding Shaq in his prime? You know, TV can make it look real good, but my whole thinking with Shaq, every time, you know, a coach looked at me and said, you got the big fella, you want him? I, of course I want him. Let me, let me see what I can do. I knew how to pick and choose my spots with Shaq. You know, in the beginning of the game, if I thought I was going to muscle him and do things like that, he was going to put it on my head every time. So what I would do is I would just muscle him just enough so it wasn't that easy of a shot. And then I'd run on him and keep running him. And after a while, you know, he'd fatigue out. And then that's when I could really even the, not totally even the playing field, but I, I could use some leverage and put some body on him. Like today's game, I wouldn't have been able to do any of that. And, you know, all the seven footers and all the big men inside are, are shooters now. They're, you know, I can hit a jumper, but I'm not hitting threes. So I don't think my game is made for today's game. But back then, that was the way that I survived. I don't, wouldn't say I outplayed him, but I survived playing Shaq, playing against him. I've gotten the interview, Shaq, and until you actually stand next to him, no one can really comprehend the size and breadth of him as a human being. When he would lean on you, I mean, talk about the strength level that came with that man, like, and, and also how athletic he was. People don't get how athletic and how quick he could move. We're talking about Shaq when he was with the Lakers, who was an all-star, an MVP. But the Shaq that came in the league, 
it was none of that. Everything that I just previously said about him, you know, I didn't have to guard him then, but there was none of that. This guy came in the league at seven foot thinking he's a guard. I mean, he was running the floor like a guard. He'd bring the ball up. He's breaking backboards. You don't want to get your hand between that ball and, and the, the rim because he'll tear your hand off. So I, I didn't have the guarding back then, thank God. But as he got older and we all started getting a little bigger, you know, a little less athletic than we used to be in our younger years, then I could use leverage with him. And it was just kind of like picking and choosing my spots. If I felt his lungs go, because he was gasping, then I could put more on him. But if I just felt that, oh, okay, oh shit, here it comes. What's he going to do? So, I mean, that's about the best way I could describe it. Is it true that before you played Shaq, you'd like stalk the hallways and imagine him doing horrible things to you and your family? I think I read that somewhere. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just Shaq, but mainly it was Shaq because I had to get myself in a mindset where I wasn't thinking about fouling out. I wasn't thinking about anything. The only thing I was thinking about was not getting totally embarrassed by this dude because, I mean, you know, on a good one, he'll embarrass you. He will embarrass you. So I'd have to conjure up some stuff like, man, he smacked one of my kids in the head or, or he did this to me. And then I get to the point, but by the time I got to that jump ball, it was just like, let's have a good game. Whatever, man, let's go, you know? And that probably lasted about two or three trips until I caught a spinning elbow to the neck. And it was like, ah, okay, this is, we're in the game now. I'd have to try to conjure up some things. And guys just knew, like, when I was jogging, I had that look on my face, nah, I'll leave him alone. Of course, he'd be like, just leave him, leave him alone. He'll be all right. I want to talk a little bit about your, uh, your diagnosis. Obviously, you know, the average person gets diagnosed at 60. You were diagnosed nearly half that age, fresh off a successful NBA career. Was it difficult for you to go public with your diagnosis? And was there an inciting incident that allowed you to share it with the world? Yeah, it, it was diff difficult because I didn't know what it was for the longest time. And then when I moved back to Portland and I finally knew from the neurologist that it was Parkinson's, that he believed that that's what it was, young onset Parkinson's. It really only took me a few months after that to, to kind of come out because I was fortunate enough to receive calls from Michael J. Fox and Lonnie Ali. And they were very encouraging, not asking me to join the fight, not asking me to be a some an advocate for Parkinson's, but to just be myself and figure out what that path will be. Because if I get on that path, then, you know, don't half step, do it. If not, then enjoy your family, enjoy your privacy. Uh, and then the one incident that really triggered me to talk to Rick Buecher and come out was I was at a game with uh, Chris Dudley and Jerome Kersey, and we were being honored at, at halftime. And my hand was shaking so much because I was nervous. I finally told Jerome, I said, Jerome, man, I, I got Parkinson's. I don't want anybody to know. And he goes, shit, I can't tell. Well, I can tell now that you told me, but just you'll be all right. Keep your hand in your pocket and stay next to me. I, I'll take care of you. And we went out. And the whole time I'm thinking everybody's looking at my hand, this, that, and the other. And then I saw a video of it. You couldn't even tell. You couldn't even tell. But to me, I knew it. And it was time to come out because there were things I wanted to do. I wanted to try commentating and things like that, but I couldn't, I didn't have an answer for what was going on with my body. And then when I did, it was just like, all right, I don't want to put, throw myself to the wolves and, you know, be the shaky one on ESPN or something like that.
So that was the very first time you publicized it, I'm sure, outside of your family was was before you were getting honored at a game. I publicized it with Jerome, yeah. not with anybody else, just with Jerome. And then uh, my family, they all knew. And then that's when I decided to call Rick Buecher and he kind of was the one that let it out to the world. When that happened, Brian, what was your initial reaction? Obviously, you'd mentioned that Michael J. Fox and the Ali's reached out to you, but what was the initial reaction from the general public when you went public with it? I think people were surprised and, you know, sympathetic to the fact that a known athlete has been diagnosed with Parkinson's. Um, it received a lot of calls from around the league, different people. And, um, you know, it really touched the people that I didn't realize that it would touch the most were some of the people I had the biggest battles against, like Carl Malone. I mean, I got a call from him. He says, I heard what's going on with you. What can I do? And, you know, we end up having our first gala and make $110,000 on a fishing trip with him out of Alaska. So, you know, I, I think, you know, with anything, when somebody gets the initial report on somebody being sick or going through something, it's like, oh my gosh, and then life goes on. Life goes on. I want to talk to you about the relationship with Carl because I love basketball, but I can't stand today's NBA because everybody's friends. Back when you played, people really hated each other. It was still kind of that 80s and 90s mentality where we're at war and we're not going to be friends. When you finally get to kind of overcome that with Carl Malone, how, how does that envelop itself? How do you say, all right, we're off the court. We're not warriors anymore. How are you able to see past that, that on-court rivalry? You know what? He told me on the fishing trip, uh, it was like, Brian, I always had the utmost respect for you. You know why? And I go, no. And he goes, because anything that happened on the court stayed on the court. You never brought it off. Like all these years, I, I'd see you a couple of times out in the public. You would, you would say hi. We'd uh, greet one another. But you wouldn't have believed the amount of guys that take it off the court and, you know, want to do something about it. And I said, you know, what happens on the court stays on the court. I mean, it's different if you saying things about my mama or something like that. <laughs> but you're not that type of dude. And um, I was grateful for him telling me that, you know, because I tried to leave it on the court with a lot of people. But I understood what he was saying. You know, if you're dominating somebody and you're known for elbows, you crack somebody. I mean, it was all in the game. It wasn't like he went and zeroed in on my eye. He just happened to catch it. And if that never happens, I, I think half the world wouldn't know who I was. <laughs> you even had that mindset at the time, though, didn't you? When, like, he was like, I don't like him. He doesn't like me. But even at the time, weren't you like, we should go on a fishing trip together? He's one of my idols or something? Absolutely. You know, I, I ran off the court, grabbed my clothes, funky, didn't take no shower, just ran to the bus because I knew it was coming with the reporters. And so I get home and I'm talking to my wife at the time, Gina. And she said, you know, Elijah cried himself to sleep, my son. I said, really? She goes, he just kept saying, he hurt my daddy. And so I'm like, oh, I'm okay. And she goes, did you see what Carl said, you know, on ESPN? I said, no. So I clicked it on there and it finally came on. And after I heard everything, I thought, man, tomorrow at practice, it's, you know, it's going to be a feeding frenzy. So what should I do? And I'm, of course, everybody's 
thinking that I'm going to be like, well, forget him, you know, what's up? All this type of stuff. And I just, I just downplayed it because he really was my idol. I really did know him to be an outdoorsman and I really did want to go fishing. And I chose to talk about that and be peaceful about the matter rather than give them some, some extra flame and fire to, to put under Utah's ass. And I just went out there and let my play do, I mean, I think I held him to eight points in 46 minutes. I mean, when he went in, I went in. When he went out, I went out. And that was probably one of the most memorable defensive nights that I'd had. Of course, the rest were finally letting us play too, so. Yeah, like that's, when you're watching today's NBA, that's gotta infuriate you where these guys can't even put a fingertip on each other. It's gotta drive you nuts, I'm assuming. It is. I don't watch a whole lot of basketball games these days. I mean, it's it's fun to watch Damian Lillard. It's fun to watch you know, Stephen Curry and guys like that. But I, I really, I don't watch the game as much as I used to. Um, is it because of that? It has something to do with it because I'm sitting there like, what? Why didn't he buy some out? Oh, you got to hit him, you know. But it's, that's just not the way the game is anymore. You mentioned Curry and Lillard, and those guys are incredible. I mean, Curry's obviously the greatest shooter of all time. Lillard's somewhere on that list as well. But if they had to play in the era you played in, where if Curry's coming down the lane, Brian Grant's putting an elbow in ribs, do those guys survive back then? Like, could Curry actually be alive after a few games? I think he would adjust because that is what the times call for. I think Jalen Rose said it best. Someone asked him, would he be relevant now, like he was relevant back then? And he said, if I think about me now sitting here and playing in today's game, no. But if I was young and I was in this era, then my game would already be molded to being able to play this way. You know, it's just like the guys you say couldn't bang or wouldn't bang, they don't bang because they don't want to lose money in, in, in games. But back when we were in there, you could you, you get away with a lot of stuff. And I think they would have adapted too. You mentioned uh, Carl and, and the kind of the big names who reached out to you. And Michael J. Fox's fundraiser in 2009, you, you had some huge names show you support, one of which was Charles Barkley, who you hadn't been teammates with. It, were you friends with Charles or were you surprised to see him there? How did that go down? No, I was uh, friends with Charlie Rosenzweig with NBA Entertainment. And he was the one that helped me get in touch with all these people. And uh, Jerome knew Charles pretty well too. And Jerome was key in helping me get some people there. It was just, I tell you what, it was overwhelming because it was our first event. You know, our step and repeat was the biggest one that's been in Portland ever. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was nerve wracking a little bit walking through there. And then, you know, when the night started, you know, Pat Riley gives a speech. I got to go in between he, him and Michael J. Fox. I mean, I have this story where uh, Pat's almost finished and I'm looking at Michael and I'm saying, I, I can't, I can't go out there. He goes, oh, sure, you can't, don't worry about it. I go, no, I got bricks. He goes, bricks. I said, I'm shitting bricks. And he goes, you'll be okay. And I go, I'm not going to, go. oh, you're going out there. <laughs> and so I went out there and gave my speech and then Michael came and gave just a, it was just an incredible night. It was an incredible night. And I felt very fortunate that men that had previously played and were currently playing that had shown up that I didn't even know them really, but they showed up. 
What is it like playing for Pat Riley? You always hear all the stories, but give me a first-hand account what it was like. It's like that yin and yang. You know, on one side, you just want to choke him because not because he's not a good person, but because he makes you bring out the best in you. And to do that, you got to cross a whole lot of thresholds that you wouldn't normally cross that I had never crossed in my six years in the league prior to being there. And then on the other side, he'll do something or say something and it's so charismatic. Now you're like, man, that's my coach. I love that dude, man. I'm, I'm going to go to the wire for him. And, you know, I, he knows this and he's, you know, I've had a lot of good coaches, but I've really enjoyed playing for him because he not only, you know, expected the best on the court, but he expected the best off the court and being professional and showing professionalism was his thing. And I really enjoyed that. You're exactly his type of player, man. He loves guys. You're the Oakley for that Heat teams. So he loves you guys. Well, I'll tell you what, there's only one Oak. <laughs> one Oak, he's an enforcer, man. But I appreciate that that comment because I got a lot of respect for Charles Oakley too. Riley speaks really highly of you, you know, obviously you're a valued member of any community, which any team you're on, where does that kind of altruistic philanthropic spirit come from, from you? Cause you've been, a, you know, a stand-up guy your entire career. Uh, there we go right there. A stand-up guy. I've done things that, you know, I'm in the position to help people and I've always wanted to help where I can help. And even there is where I can't really help. Um, you know, I used to be in the family that had to depend on the church bringing meals or other family members looking out for us because my father wasn't able to get a job or my mom wasn't making enough, that type of stuff. But, um, you know, when I made it, I always knew I wanted to try to help out as much as I can. But um, it's what you said about being one of the good guys in the league. I got shit just like everybody else. And that's an, another reason for this book. Like, okay, here we go. Here's all that good stuff you love, but here's some other things. Here's where I failed. I had a lot of failures. And it's kind of me putting it out there for the world to hold me accountable to. And you got to play with some version of the Jailblazers. And that was one heck of an entertaining team because you guys had Rashid. I got to play against Rashid in high school, by the way. I'm from Philly originally. And when he played at Gratz, that dude was beyond words dominant. I'm a 6'2 guy. And I was just like, this guy's up from a different planet. Um, dude, he was awesome. And one of the smartest guys you'll ever meet too, which is incredible. But that Jailblazers team, what was that really like? What was the inner dynamic of those teams? I don't really remember us being the Jailblazers when I was there. I think a lot of stuff started happening after I left and Jermaine left, but we definitely were the black sheep of the league. You know, it was like, I remember we went to Atlanta and, and uh, we ran into two short and we were like, uh, yeah, we'll be at the game tomorrow. I know you went for Atlanta. He goes, uh-uh, we went for the dirty blazers, you know, something like that. And then we was just like, for real? He said, y'all, that's how we look at y'all, man. Y'all be out there getting it done, clean or dirty or something like that. I mean, we had so much talent, dude. I don't even know if I'd want to play on a team that loaded ever again because it it was, you watch Jermaine O'Neal upset because he's not getting minutes and he's killing us in practice. You know, he's killing us in practice. Got Bonzi Wells that comes in. I mean, then you know, we got 
and we had Jr. He when he was with us, he was incredible. Then we get Scotty, and we get Steve Smith and Damon, and I mean one through, probably one through thirteen could be starting on any team in the league. And Mike had to juggle that. And let me tell you something, it wasn't always pretty. You know, Mike Dunleavy, I will give him this. He wasn't no punk. I mean, if, if you went there with him, he slammed him with him. Well, what's up then? You know, it, it was like that sometimes. But uh, it was a great experience. Of course, we lost to some team called the Lakers <laughs> in game seven. And I just think back to that all the time because I'm like, if we'd have won that game, I probably could have retired in Portland. I probably could have got a chance to retire in Portland. Maybe been one of those lucky guys to get their name in the rafters, but it didn't go our way. And it was LA and that's what started that dynasty all over for LA. Y'all already have one, man. Y'all need to let us go on and get it. Portland always had that horrible luck. The Drexler Blazers ran into the Jordan Bulls. You guys ran into the Shaq Kobe Lakers. It was, and then obviously, you know, it's, it's, Portland's always kind of been that town that just got the fucking shaft in, in these situations. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's been some tough moments here in Portland, but I will say this. I mean, even through the jailblazer era, era, you know, these fans have stayed very loyal, very loyal to their Blazers. And now, you know, they're getting a look at a different superstar and Dame Lillard and CJ McCollum. I mean, they've got a really nice team and, an opportunity to do things. We're in the West. The West is just loaded, but they're competing. And that's that's all we all ever want to see is our team compete. We want a championship, but we can't get a championship, at least compete. You mentioned something, Brian, that really just struck a chord with me. You said you guys won that game seven against the Lakers. You would have stayed in Portland. You end up signing that huge deal with the Heat instead. Why did that game seven, why was it such a tilt where you decided to go somewhere else versus had you won it, you would have stayed. Man, you should have been in that locker room after we lost. It was like disbelief. We were looking at each other. Did we just lose that shit? And then, you know, some guys were throwing stuff. Other guys were just being silent, you know, and then there was the next year. And it's just like, it's really, really, really hard to get to this point, even though it was our second time going to the Western Conference Finals you know, got destroyed by San Antonio. Um, and now we lost this game the way we lost it. It was like I saw the seams coming undone. That that special glue that Mike Dunleavy had to keep the team together and doing what he needed to do, that was, that was going to fade out. That was one reason. But the other reason was when I met with Pat Riley, I'm coming from a team full of a lot of egos and a lot of character, but uh, it kind of was crazy sometimes. And now I'm talking to this guy walking through this new arena that they're about to get. And I'm hearing, I'm in control. You want to be a part of this? This is how we do things. Professionalism. I just had the sense like nobody did shit in that arena without talking to him first. And I like that. I like that about him. I, that structure. I knew that I would know what the hell my position was. What do you want me to do? Okay, I need you to do this. Make sure he, he don't get through that screen. Okay, you know I can do that. Was there a leadership void in in Portland? Was like who was the alpha there? Was it Sheed? Was the guy who everyone kind of bowed down to in the locker room, or where, where did you fit in that in that team? 
I, I really don't. I mean, the only one that I could truly remember was Scotty when he got there because he brought that Bulls mentality, you know, brought the rings in, let us see him. Uh, if he had a problem or issue, he would talk to you about it. But before he got there, it was it was kind of loose. You know, it wasn't really that one person that was saying this. Nobody really wanted to get up and step up and talk like that, you know, might not look cool, might say the wrong thing, because believe me, you know, fights could jump off in practice for real. After your heat run, you end up getting traded to the team that you hated so badly. You end up going to the Lakers in that deal with Shaq. How are you able to shift from, I hate this team, to I'm not playing for them? Kobe Bryant, you know, it was like, Oh my God, I, I'm going to LA. Wow. You know, I just have my own reservations for personal reasons. I really want to go out there. It's just, I'm not a big, big city person. And I, when I got out there, just meeting him, because I'm looking at Kobe, he's in that Jordan category to me. You know, I was like, man, I'm going to be playing with this dude. And when I got there, you know, there were little things that happened between he and I that made me really respect the guy. You know, I thought I was a strong cat and I was strong and, you know, I had like all the plates but like five on the lap pull down. So I did like struggle like two or three. He goes, you're pretty strong, man. You mind if I do it? I go, yeah, go ahead. I'm like, man, he gonna hurt himself or something. Puts the whole rack on her. And I'm just like, good job, Kobe. Kobe's stronger up. than you. I he can't believe that. He was stronger than me on that on that lap pull down. Now, granted, I've had labrum labrum tears, all kind of stuff, but still, I mean, that was very impressive. That was very impressive. You had fourteen surgeries, I believe, in your career. You know, through twelve years. Do you think your familiarity with that pain has made the diagnosis easier for you compared to other people? You know what? I don't think so. I think it made it more tricky and something harder to deal with because I've been so used to, if something's broke, anti-inflammatory for the swelling and surgery for the correction of the, the issue or the problem. Now I was dealing with something where they give you a pill, but it's to help, you know, kind of lower the symptoms and stuff, but there's no cure. There's, there's surgeries that you can have to help with the symptoms, but this is something that's not going to go away. You know, when I'm battling my own body, microfracture repair, lateral release, patella debridement, labrum, all kind of stuff. I knew that it was just a matter of time and hard work to where I'd get back. But with this, this was a different beast. And I, I struggled, I struggled with that for a while because I, knew there was nothing I could, it's not like you go, let me outwork it. You know, you outwork it. It's right there looking at you, I'm still here. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna take a couple steps ahead of you because you were working too hard. Another thing I wanted to ask, and I had no idea uh, that, you know, depression was kind of a precursor to Parkinson's. Was this something that you suffered with? And did you ever conflate it with just being away from the lights and not being in the NBA anymore and, and maybe need, needing to reinvent yourself? Or did you realize that something was you know, deeply wrong. Well, the funny thing is when I was in my last year in Phoenix, my knee was starting to get really arthritic and Vinny Del Negro had came into one of our practices and he kind of said, hey, let me talk to you for a minute. And I go, hey, what's up, Vinny? He was like, 
you're retiring after this year? I said, yeah, my knee is gone. I don't have much left. And he said, well, I just want to talk to you, man. When you retire, there's not that much golf. There's not that much fishing. There's not that much hunting in the world to fill your, your day. What you're going to have to do is figure out how to fill your day because we all go through depression. Some of us a lot, some of us very little, but find something to do. So I was expecting some type of depression to come into my life. But at the time, remember, I thought that depression only helped having the weak-minded people. I didn't really believe in depression, you know, taking you over the way it does. And so I, I went to the first home opener in Miami. I sat through half the game and then I had to leave. I just had a panic attack. Like, you know, my clock was going on. Oh, you're supposed to be out there too. Then I went into a deep, dark depression and it lasted for nine months. I tore and destroyed my marriage over those nine months, you know, scared the shit out of my kids. Um, didn't know whether I was coming or going. And it took six and almost seven months before I went in and got help and, and was clinically diagnosed with deep depression. And so after that, someone tells me to depress. So I'm like this, let's talk about it, you know, cause that's real, it's real. Did it ever get to the point for you, Brian, where you were thinking about taking your own life? I mean, did it get that deep? No, I never thought about taking my own life, but situations were happening within my household. I was thinking about going after some cats, you know, but, you know, I told my mom one time, she came down during that time I was depressed and she's like kind of just rubbing my head and I'm laying on her on the couch and she's just like, baby, I'm, I'm scared for you. And I'm like, why? So I'm just scared you're going to do something silly and hurt yourself. And I just looked at her and I said, mom, I can promise you, you don't have to worry about me hurting me. Now that well, you might want to worry about me hurting somebody else, but I'm not going to hurt me. She goes, well, I don't want you to do either. Or. And I said, I don't either. And that's why we're talking about it. I was just thinking about the era you played in, the power forwards that you had to face. That was probably the last great power forward era the NBA has seen. You had KG, you had Carl, you had Duncan, so many great, great fours. Who was the toughest and how did you handle trying to guard that person? I tell you what, Carl was the toughest simply because He's big and strong, but he's fast. You know, I always prided myself on like, man, I, I gotta be the fastest four in the league. But when I played him, that's why I was like, we either tired or he might be a little faster. I mean, he'd get up and down that court, and, you know, Stockton knew exactly where to hit him. So I, I would say Carl and definitely Tim Duncan, because Tim had this game where if he got you on that block and he's off a little bit, that little glass shot he had, that was money. That was money. And then on top of it, he could come in and dunk on you. He was long as shit. I mean, I don't think people realize how long he was. He walked like this because his arms are dragging on the damn ground. You know, and it, it, he, was, he was just a tough cover. But those two gave me the most problem. How much shit did KG talk on the court, especially young KG? He talked, he talked about as much as anybody else, you know. He had my respect because he had game, and I think that I had his respect because I tried to do my best against him. But he was, you know, he was a tight player. I mean, I heard him jawing off to people, but then again, so did I at times. 
I read that you have a, a bucket list you're working through, climbing Mount St. Helens, taking public speaking courses. Or, is there anything on the horizon uh, you're motivated to tackle? I always wanted to go to Brazil. I don't know, but, <laughs> you know, I've always, uh, I was that kid growing up watching movies like Blame It on Rio, you know, 007 Moonraker, you know, when they're in Brazil. I, I mean, all that has always been intriguing to me since I was a kid. So definitely want to go to Brazil sometime. Leandro Barbosa told me, BG, you might want a different vacation to Brazil <laughs> and don't go to Sao Paulo because they will rob me. <laughs> Talking about they'll rob, rob him. And so, yeah, I, I think that's one thing I want to do. And then, of course, just, you know, live the best quality of life I can live from here. Brian, you signed two huge mega deals, the Miami deal and the Blazers deal. When that kind of money, when you put pen to paper and you realize, holy shit, this amount of money is going to be mine. And obviously you got to pay the, the agents and the managers, but it's still a whole lot left over. How were you able to mentally comprehend that many millions are coming to you? Really wasn't. I mean, after a while you do, but it's like you can get caught up in that. Look at what I got. Look at what I got. I saw a lot of that. And my rookie year, I can remember I went back home to my small town. I had like, you know, platinum chain with a basketball with diamonds in it, watch with diamonds and a pinky ring. And I remember walking into my grandma's house like, hey, everybody, how y'all doing? They're like, oh, baby, you said nothing. And one of my aunts pulled me aside and said, that's all nice stuff you got on there. But don't forget, some of your family members ain't got enough money to get food. You might want to think about that. And I was like, <laughs> it was all in the pocket. And I never went home wearing diamonds and none of that shit. I just, matter of fact, I sold all that stuff to one of my teammates. So I got like, man, you want to buy this? I don't need it. You know, I had to remember where You're I came extremely from. Extremely giving to your family members. I read like uh, buying your mom a house. And so I think you've more than made up for that from what I've read. I try to help out where I, when I can and where I can. You know, the one thing I realized is you can't just lay a lot of money on somebody who's never had a lot of money later, like me. You know, you make a lot of mistakes, but family members, man, I can, you know, remember laying it out for all the aunts and uncles and hearing about all the arguments that were going on. You know, you still owe me $150 with it, you know, that kind of stuff. But that was one of my biggest lessons is, you know, do what you can, but just realize that money's not the answer. I mean, it, it's nice to have money, but it's not the answer. Financial literacy is such an important conversation with athletes in any era, especially when you look at the money these guys are making today. It's just mind-blowing. Guys signing $250 million deals. Yeah. When that happens, are you? does everybody come out of the woodwork, whether it's family or bad business people's, is your phone just ringing off the hook when, once you sign those contracts? It was more getting hustled by people that I thought were trying to do good things. Uh, not family members, but I'm talking about, you know, trying to get into things I probably shouldn't ever try to get into, like the clothing business and uh, having a certain guy be my manager and finding out that he was a crook. Um, those are the type of things, you know, you, those are the calls you got to watch out for in my opinion, because it was kind of like I knew how to deal with my family, but 
they had some something that I want. I wanted I want to be successful in the clothing business. I wanted to have a manager that knew how to get things set up and do it right, but he really didn't. Right. I went to high school with Pete Frades. I'm not sure if you heard of him. He's one of the face of ALS, the guy behind the Ice Bucket mm. Challenge. Okay. Uh, before his diagnosis, he said he was kind of floating through life at a job he didn't like. And raising awareness for ALS was kind of giving his life meaning and purpose in a way that he never had. Are you able to view your life through this optimistic lens? And has your diagnosis added value to your day-to-day existence? Optimism. You know, Michael J. Fox is the king of optimism. And I'm so grateful for that because I always have somebody that I can look, look upon or turn to that has that optimism. But I'm not an optimist completely. I'm pessimistic. It's hard for me um, to be so optimistic about this disease because I'm 6'9". I see what it does to people. You know, this is the biggest thing I'm dealing with right now, but, you know, that could turn into just kinesias, could turn into this. So I'm not that, not as optimistic about things as other people who are dealing with this disease, but it definitely has given me a new light. I mean, a different stage, a different stage to work on to help people who are suffering just like myself. Has there been uh, advancements since your diagnosis in 2008 and treatments or, or whatnot? I think they've come out with a couple of different drugs to help out with certain symptoms. But other than the deep brain stimulator where they go in and put rods in your brain to emit a small current that replaces what dopamine will do, I haven't heard of anything else. Uh, Stem cells have always been on the horizon as something that could possibly cure Parkinson's, but they still haven't mastered it or hadn't had the funding for it. I'm really a believer in people wanting to keep diseases around drug companies, you know, because it's profitable. I, I almost believe like there's some kind of cure on the shelf for cancer, for this, for that. But then who would you have to sell the cancer medication to as far as chemo and things like that? I want to also talk to you about the Portland fans because you always see, especially with the Rose Garden, the fans, how much they embrace that team. And you talked about even though they haven't brought a championship there in years, what is it like to have that type of fan support? And did you ever experience anything like that anywhere else? I've been fortunate. Like Sacramento, my rookie year, my second year when we made the playoffs, the first time in 10 years, I think the franchise had made the playoffs. We had great fans in Sacramento, still do. Um, They're very supportive. Of course, when I got drafted, they didn't know who I was. They weren't very supportive on the radio. But uh, once we got things rolling down there, they it was incredible. I had one of those experiences when we were going against Seattle where we came out and they had these cowbells. It was so loud, you just couldn't hear yourself scream. It was just, it was, it was nerve wracking, but awesome. And then Portland, great fans. Brian, our mission here on the Endless Hustle podcast is to find out how successful people like you continue to elevate and find meaning in your life. What habits do you incorporate in your life now after the diagnosis that keep you motivated and fulfilled? Well, when I'm on it, exercising and training, but I can tell you right now, I've got the COVID-20, COVID-25 going. So it, 
it just doesn't come off like it used to. You know what I mean? It's like my son was kind of big. We started at the same time, and two weeks later, I'm like, damn, how much weight did you lose? Because I didn't lose a damn – I didn't even lose a half a pound. So, no, exercising uh, and really just spending time with my kids, just making up for lost time, especially with the older ones, because I was always gone, coming and going, or drama. But uh, I really enjoy spending time with my kids. You're one of the greatest players to ever come out of Xavier. And I'm always curious. Obviously, we know the Dukes and the UNCs of the world and now the Gonzagas. You're on the national radar at all times. But when you're at a Xavier, at a mid-level conference school, how do you get noticed? Even though you're as good as any other player probably on any other team, how are you getting noticed when you're at one of those schools? If, if you win, somebody will always take notice at some point. But when you're not winning... It, it's just a local thing, Cincinnati, you know, Southwest Ohio thing. It's a different program than it was when I played there. We practiced in the field house, played at uh, the gardens, which always had ice on it, so it was freezing. Now they have a big, huge arena. It's a true campus. It's a, it's a big campus now. I mean, when I went there, Ledgewood was a street that went down the middle of it. And, you know, you had the dorms on either side and then there was the college. Now it's, they close that down. It's, it's part of the mall. And like I said, wins will get you noticed, but having the type of programs that they've developed over the years and having the arena and being able to show guys on visits, you know, this is what we do academically. I think it's more appealing now. They're able to get better players than they may not have been able to in the past. There's a great series on Netflix right now called Last Chance You. I don't know if you've been watching it, but they're they're featuring East Los Angeles College, and it's a community college in East Los Angeles, and it's a bunch of players playing JUCO, trying to make it to the next level. And whatever reason, could be academics, could be skill level, could be family issues. They've all ended up at this school. It's fascinating because the players talk about how when they were in high school, they were the man. And then to come to a program where you're either sitting on the bench or you're not allowed to shoot, and you have to become a role player is such a mindset change. When you're a superstar to Xavier and you're a scorer, to then have to come to the NBA and be just a rebounder, just a defensive player, what is that mindset change like when you're no longer the man? Well, it wasn't that hard for me because, hey, I didn't think I was going to the NBA. Well, I thought my career in basketball was over. You know, like I said in my book, I was at Procter & Gamble, General Electric, putting in resumes, hoping that one of the higher-ups that went to Xavier would hire me at an entry-level position to where I didn't have to go back home to my little small town in Georgetown, but stay in Cincinnati. And then, you know, once I found an agent who believed in me and things started taking off, I can remember when he said, I just sent two tickets for you and your family to come to the draft. And I said, I'm not going to the draft. He says, what? You're going to be a top you know, first round draft pick. I said, no, I'm not going to be that guy that's sitting there and everybody's like, is he going? Which people wouldn't have done anyway. Cause when I got, when they called my name, I was like, who the hell is that? So when I got to Sacramento, you know, I came in the wrong way. Cause I came to, I didn't join the team until the last game. So I had to earn the respect of the fans over a five game period. But when I did, then it was, it was on, but I knew that Mitch Richmond was our shooter. You know, Spud was, he'd shoot, bringing up dishes. All I knew I had to do was defend and rebound. 
those are the things I could control. I couldn't control where that ball was coming or even if I was going to be able to make basket after basket. So it didn't really bother me like it would bother somebody who was a D1 All-American who used to starting from high school all through college. Speaking of Sacramento, one of their all-time greats, another power forward, Chris Weber, is up for the Hall of Fame. And there's constantly been discussion around him because of him rubbing people the wrong way throughout his career. And there may have been a bias created that's kept him out of the Hall of Fame. What are your thoughts on how much on-court performance should determine you going into the Hall of Fame versus off-court actions? I think ultimately what it comes down to is this is the game of basketball and we get paid to go out and play basketball. Um, that's not me saying that I don't think we should be role models, but if we're basing being inducted on our play, hands down, Chris Weber should be in. I mean, he was one of the toughest guys I went against. And you know, big hands just would dunk on you. He had, he had a great game. I liked his game and so Based on that, I absolutely think he should get in the Hall of Fame. I don't know what he's done off the court to even have that question come up, but I'm sure it's nothing that half the Hall of Famers haven't, you know, experienced something, you know. Brian Grant, you were a pleasure to talk to. How can people find your book, Rebound? Uh, on Amazon. Uh, I'm not sure how many bookstores it's coming out to, but you can definitely pick it up on Amazon. Go out and do that. Thank you for being so generous with your time and you're welcome back anytime. Thanks guys. I appreciate it. You were a beast, man. Thanks for a great interview, Brian. You're all, you're all right with me, even though you were LA. <laughs> you you did end up playing for the Lakers. I can't I hate you all the way. You were awesome though. <laughs> Thanks, man. All right, folks, that was 12-year NBA veteran, and I can't say it enough, one of the toughest guys that I've ever seen hit the basketball court, Brian Grant. Make sure to check out his new book, Rebound, Soaring in the NBA, Facing an Incurable Disease, and Finding What Really Matters, a great, great rebound story on coming back from some of the worst stuff that you can ever encounter. Thanks for a fascinating interview, Brian Grant. All right, Matt, we had a pretty loaded week here with six guests, didn't we? We sure did, but it was well worth it because we got some good information. We talked to some pretty incredible people, and we're going to keep this train running. Running, baby. Choo-choo. <laughs> that was the worst choo-choo ever. We have another loaded week next week, so stay tuned. We're back on Tuesday with a brand-new episode. Let's give them the plugs, Matt, and let's go enjoy our weekend. Cool. Subscribe to Endless Hustle wherever you listen to podcasts. Give us a subscribe too so you're getting push notifications on all of these incredible interviews. You can watch episodes on Bro Bible's YouTube channel. Go to brobible.com because we'll be writing more editorials surrounding the interviews. You can follow us on Bro Bible at Bro Bible, Instagram and Twitter. And you can follow our Endless Hustle channels at Endless Double Underscore Hustle on Twitter and at Endless Hustle Pod on Instagram. And I am at Mr. Kohan, K-E-O-H-A-N on Instagram and Twitter. And Arthur? I'm at Arthur Cade on Twitter, at it's me, Arthur Cade on Instagram. Thanks for loving the endless hustle. Thanks for listening to all of these wonderful guests that we're having on. And we will be back next Tuesday with another loaded episode. Have a great weekend, endless hustlers. See you next week. Peace. Peace.